excuse me for a second. No, I just thought every sermon should start with mucus. Sorry, I'm still kind of lingering in that moment. Think of all the things. I, I miss all of you, and one of the things I miss every Sunday is getting to hear Pastor Dan and Mary leading worship, so I felt like I was home. And uh, just so amazing. Um, it's good to be back. I'm going to slide this over here real quick. I was—I noticed on my iPad um, something I was reminded of. Uh, by the way, Avon, uh, if you don't know her, she's my lovely bride. Most of you do, uh, or some of you do. Uh, my uh, incredible life partner. And um, I just looked at my iPad and realized that we have some things to talk about. Um, do you see what this is? Her iPad, and I, I hopefully you can see what she has as her screensaver. If you don't know what that is, do you know that someone went to Wisconsin last week and brought my wife a cheesehead? My wife is a Green Bay Packers fan. Every Sunday, she finishes service, she comes home, makes lunch, and puts on an Aaron Rodgers jersey. Yes, he does love sinners, and I just... Uh, so pray for my wife. Um, people ask me, how is life spring doing? My typical answer is, um, disappointingly well. Um, it's amazing. I'm not surprised at how well uh, this church is doing, and you need to know, Pastor Dan and Mary, you guys are awesome. You guys have an incredibly good pastoral team. Yeah, would you say thank you to these guys? You, you may or may not know about this, but October is Pastor Appreciation Month. You've probably already appreciated them, but if you haven't, um, send them money. Um, no, that they absolutely love your encouragement. You, you probably don't realize this, but uh, your pastor uh, uh, loses sleep over you. Uh, sometimes is worrying about you when you don't even realize it is leading can be absolutely wonderful but also can be very lonely um, often hearing from God weeks, months and years before uh, you catch up to the thing that's birthed in his heart and that is very difficult as a leader and uh, constantly requires faith to be able to say come on uh, the Lord is leading us and, I'm, and, he, and you have, you have a, a shepherd who's following the good shepherd you have a lead sheep right here is what, it, what, what we all are, pastors. We're really lead sheep, following the good shepherd. And so uh, I, am, uh, I can't look at him right now because I'll lose it. So, um, I also want to just let you, just to remind you, some of you, 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 this may be the first time you've seen me and, and others, you, you've, you've, uh, you've wished I wasn't here. Um, <laughs> um you guys, Life Center, uh, Life Spring, uh, you, you guys sent money, you sent financial resource ahead to the town of Clarkston, Washington. You supported us as missionaries to Clarkston. And uh, that was three years ago. Uh, our first Sunday was the Sunday following Labor Day, three years ago in September. Um, in that time, God has done amazing things. You just need to know that at, at, lowest, at its lowest point, that very, very damaged church had a whopping six people in it in a building that seats 500. Okay? There was enough room for all of us. 
$2 million in debt, no money in a checking account. Uh, there was no discernible worship ministry. Uh, it was a flood, you know, just, just trying to get things started. No children's program to speak of. Uh, no outreach to the community. There was really no youth ministry. Really, there was no church. It was basically starting over. I told God I would never plant a church again and be careful what you tell God you won't do. Um, we had lots of bills to pay and a few traumatized souls and none of them wanted to pay any of them. And I'm happy to report in three years because in no, no small part, big part, you played in doing something amazing in Clarkston. Last Sunday, we had 136 people in church. And it was the opening day of hunting season. Over there, that means a lot. Uh, we have a children's ministry program. Had 30 kids last Sunday. Uh, a youth ministry that sent dozens to camp. I'm hoping this summer we'll be able to send as many as LifeSpring did. I was absolutely amazed to see how many of you guys sent to camp. Um, we have had 100 people go through our Rooted process, uh, which is a discipleship program. Uh, it's going on right now. Um, we've had multiple outreaches. We've had dozens of people get baptized this year. First time, I just had someone come to me last Sunday. Pastor, I want to get baptized. I wasn't even talking about baptism. And it just, the Lord's putting on their heart. Our, our building, by the way, we started at $2 million in debt. We are completely out of debt today. Three years. I didn't say this in the first service, but, you know, I got to a point, I was so upset. I was really angry with God. If you've never been angry with God, you've really never met Him. I'm, I, really. Uh, I was so hurt, and I was seeing the, the, the church and how damaged it was, and all of this huge debt. And I just, I walked around the building, and I, or actually, before I walked around the building, I just said, God, Why? Why, why is all this happening? This isn't right. I was just angry. And I remember his voice. He said, ask me for the building. It was for sale. We were going to have to move. Not only was I going to have to rebuild a church, but I was going to have to relocate a church. How do you do that with a bunch of people who, who don't even really want to be there? And the Lord said, ask me for the building. What do you mean, ask you for the building? What do you think I've been doing? It's like, you've been whining out loud. <laughs> I marched around the building. I did my Jericho thing. I don't know. And I was, if you'd have seen me from a distance, you'd have think, there's a, there's a man on the, he's a little loose. He's, he's a little psychologically damaged. He's waving his arms and screaming out loud as I'm walking around this building. And I'm weeping. Not long after that, I'm not going to go into the whole detail, but someone actually bought our building, asked us if we wanted to stay. I pay $890 a month in a lease for a 23,000 square foot building that I... I mean, it's absolutely amazing that God would do that. And I feel like I might share that this morning because I do believe, and I saw when we planted Life Spring in 2001, we have always seen that there will be a place someday, a permanent location for Life Spring that uh, will be here during the week and a, a home base. Um, and I don't know when that is. 
I just know that if you sense God leading you in that direction and when that time is right, I would just ask you for that righteous faith to beg God, God, we need you to show up. We need you to do something that we'll look back and go, that was God doing that. In my wildest dreams, I had no idea he was going to pay off the building. Let me stay there for less than the average person pays in a mortgage. God, you just can't out, you just can't outgive God. You guys were a part of that. You sowed that seed. And if you can sow that seed here, I, I, I just I want to be a part of sowing a seed here too. I hope that's part of what's happening today. I knew when I uh, came to Clarkston that it was a little different than Seattle, Tacoma area, Milton, Edgewood area. The other day I was in a group of, with a group of pastors and I realized I'm not in Clarkston. And I'm not in Seattle. I'm not in Tacoma anymore. I'm, I'm really in a different place. And all these pastors, were, we were holding hands, we were praying. And this one pastor, he stood up and he, his prayer went something like this. I don't remember exactly how it went, but I remember noting it was a very different kind of prayer than I'd heard over here. And he said, Dear Heavenly Father, I'm praying for all the men who are out in the forest hunting today. Keep them safe. Let them shoot well. And keep, the, keep them safe. That they would provide, I remember he said, provide food for their family. And would you help them uh, shoot and kill the animals quickly so they will die humanely? Amen. And I'm like, I am not in Tacoma anymore. I am not. And I'm thinking, you know, somewhere in Seattle there's a guy praying, Dear Heavenly Father, would you please shoot the hunter? Let Bambi kick him in the face. You know, <laughs> yeah, not in uh, Seattle anymore. I want to take us to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Um, and uh, we're going to look at uh, three parables, actually two and a half. Um, we're going to look at uh, this incredible passage of Scripture, which may be familiar to you, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, but we're going to kind of read what led up to that. Beginning Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them a story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety-nine others? in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors and saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the ninety-nine others who are righteous and have it strayed. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, 
I want my share of your estate now, before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you open your word to us? Speak to us. Let your word do what you need to do in us today. We trust you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Now, uh, I want to recommend a book to you. It's uh, called Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. If you haven't read it, I hope you will. Uh, it's on, you can get it on Kindle version. Um, you can get it on your iPad. Um, when I read this book, uh, it changed. I, I thought I had never seen the prodigal son before. I'd never read the passage. It really shaped everything uh, about my heart in regards to this particular passage of Scripture. And I want to share some of those things with you today. You know, in, uh, throughout history, a lot of the great, most of the great advances in technology and science and the arts, someone was challenging the old assumptions. And whenever someone would challenge the old assumptions, people would laugh at them, make fun of them, because everybody knows it's not done that way, right? This is what Jesus is doing in Luke 15. He is confounding assumptions. He is telling his audience in these three parables, something that is so radical and so new that people wouldn't understand what he's saying until Jesus blew up, completely exploded their old assumptions about life, God, religion, sin, salvation, all the above. Think of the first two parables as a lit fuse. And the third parable parable of the prodigal son, because it says, and to make his point further, the first two parables, a lit fuse, the, set, the third, a stick of dynamite. And that's the big idea that we're looking at, if you have notes there this morning. That Jesus' teaching won't make sense until you let him explode your old assumptions about life and religion. And I believe that many of us today, many who call ourselves Christians, many of us still don't really understand the heart of Jesus' message. Why? Because many of us are still looking through that old set of assumptions, that same old set of assumptions that Jesus addressed thousands of years ago. I've been listening to uh, some of Pastor Dan's messages online from Philippians. I love his enthusiasm. I do. So his passion is just amazing. Uh, incredibly encouraging, incredibly challenging. And, uh, and I was listening, and, and Dan was right to point out that faith in Jesus changed li- changes lives. It just does. He just does. You walk with Jesus, you can't, you, you, you can't walk with Jesus and, and, and not be different. You, you walk with Him for five minutes, you're, you're different because of who He is. It's just, it's just true. And that's the Holy Spirit in a life. That's what He does. And in and, and Philippians... 1 and verse 27, I think you guys read this last week. Paul challenged the church in Philippi saying, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of what? Worthy of, let's say it, worthy of the gospel of Christ and together as one for the faith of the gospel of Christ. Paul's basically saying here that our lifestyle must be shaped by the gospel of Christ, that our church 
should be united by the Gospel of Christ? We're to be shaped by what? The Gospel of Christ. We're to be united by what? The Gospel of Christ. Now, if we're to be shaped by and united by the Gospel of Jesus Christ, then what is the Gospel? What's the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ? And I think for a long time, I was shaped and united by something I thought was the Gospel. And in the next few minutes, I want to challenge your very definition of the Gospel. I want to challenge your very definition of what it means to be a Christian. This summer, I was on the deck, I think it was in July. Uh, and, you know, it was about 7 o'clock in the evening. And in July, it's usually pretty light out. And I commented to Yvonne, I said, Honey, it seems awfully dark out for 7 o'clock. What's, and, you know, there was no clouds or nothing. And I said, Honey, it's really kind of dark out here. She says, well, honey, it would be a lot lighter if you took your sunglasses off. I married a really smart woman. See, that's what assumptions are. Assumptions are the things that cloud, that, that uh, shape everything we see. And when we come to Scripture, we bring our own pair of sunglasses, our own pair of glasses, and we interpret everything through our experience, our assumptions, and all of that. One person can come to the Scripture and conclude, you know, it's all about God's love. Another person will say, you know what, it's all about living a good life, you know, obeying the rules. Jesus, though, takes both of those and He smashes them to smithereens. And it's like, and I hope you hear him saying to us today, listen, I'm demanding that you listen to me. Not Chad demanding that you listen to me, but Jesus, I think, in his parable is saying to his audience, I demand your attention. Because what I'm about to say, you're not going to understand, and it's going to explode your worldview. Jesus is not just, in, in this passage of Scripture, he's not just offering us some new lenses. He's saying, I am the new set of glasses that you need to see everything through. And many of them would eventually get it. Not that many of them that day, though. And he's saying, when you begin to see the whole world through my eyes, through, through who I am, it's going to change everything. It's going to shape everything. You're going to see things you never saw before. You're going to see new possibilities, new realities. You're never going to put on the new glasses until you smash the old. Because many of us don't even know that we're wearing the old. We just don't, get, we don't see that. And I want, us, I, want to, I want us to see how Jesus does this here in, in Luke 15. Three questions. Who thinks this old way? Why is it, or what is it that they think? What are the old assumptions that they have? And third, why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a problem? So here's the old way of thinking. According to Luke 15... Who, who thinks this way? Who is clinging to the old? Or just very obviously, who is upset with Jesus? It says, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law. The Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. Now, like many preachers, I have been guilty of uh, the, taking the Pharisees and putting little black hats on them and calling them villains. And... Yet, when I now read this, I find something sadly familiar 
about the way they thought. You see, when Judea came under Roman rule, the question was, how should a good Jew respond to this pagan Roman authority that they now find themselves subjected under? And so the Jews broke into several factions. The group, one group was the Essenes. These were mystics. They, became, they lived a monastic life, sort of withdrew from the culture. There were the Zealots. These were radical Jews who, in fact, plotted terrorist attacks against Rome. Um, there was a group called the Sadducees. And these guys were always depressed because they were very sad, you see. Man, how m- some of you were in first service, I see. I know. Some of you were like, oh, yeah, Pastor Chad, he's back. His stupid jokes and everything. Eyes rolling all over the place. Love it. But you see, the Sadducees, they played footsies with the Romans. You know, they were politically, they were, you know, hanging out with these guys. They were part of the ruling elite. They were very liberal, very secular in their mindset. Then there was the group called the Pharisees. These were conservative Jews who had a very high view of Scripture. And they opposed the extreme tactics of the Zealots and the extreme spirituality of the Essenes. And they saw the Sadducees as being way too liberal and too secular. And as Dr. Keller points out, these groups might seem a little familiar to us today. Because we have these small percentages in our culture too. We have the radical left. We have the radical right. We have the ruling elites. But as Keller points out, the majority of Americans, we fall in what he describes as the moral middle. By comparison, Main Street America is very conservative, goes to church, not prone to extremes, don't like the religious and political zealots that we see on television, and we don't like the ruling elites and their secular agendas. You know what this means? It means that we, Main Street America, are the good moral people. There's another name for good moral people. Pharisees. Who clings to the old assumptions? Who thinks this way? Good moral people. Good moral people. And how do they see the world? Well, look at why they were upset. Here's why they were upset at Jesus. He was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Who are these people? Well, we can look in just a couple of examples. Luke 19, a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. Short guy, right? He was a Roman sympathizer. Roman sympathizer. Luke 7 Uh, Jesus lets a prostitute wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. He embraced lepers. He embraced the poor. You know who these are? These are social outcasts. Political outcasts. Social outcasts. John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman. She's a Samaritan. She's a half-breed. She's a racial outsider. A racial outcast. So why are the Pharisees, why are their undies in a bunch? Here it is. It's because Jesus always welcomes people whom God rejects. Everybody knows that those are the people that God rejects. And Jesus, you're accepting the people that God rejects. We know that. 
Because everybody knows. God accepts moral good people and rejects those immoral bad people. You're not doing it right, Jesus. You're getting it wrong, they said. It's for this reason I think we've titled this parable wrong. It should be the not the not the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the Pharisee. Here's what they think. That when you follow the rules, God will accept you. Follow the rules, God will accept you. But notice the chapter ends, Luke 15 does. We didn't get there, but just to tell you, the chapter ends with the prodigal son coming into the banquet and enjoying the celebration, enjoying the party, and the elder brother or the Pharisee out in the cold, self-righteous, unwilling to go in and enter in. Much the same way the outcast sinners flock to Jesus, but the religious insiders stay away. Jesus said a man had two sons. One is a good son. One is a bad son. One is selfish and immoral son. One is moral and unselfish. Or immoral and unselfish. Excuse me. He's moral and unselfish. But these guys had something in common, these two kids. The rule breaker and the rule follower had something in common. You know what it was? They were both alienated from their father. They were both alienated from their father. But for different reasons. At least it appears that way on the surface. See, the younger feels that he's a failure because he's unworthy to come in. All of his mistakes and all of his past. And he's got a list. And the older one, though, he's alienated from his father. He feels entitled to a banquet of his own. He's, into, he's alienated because his, provide, his pride is preventing him from coming into the, to the party. Both types of people, the immoral and the moral, the prodigal and the loyal son, both are alienated from God. But here's the key. Jesus totally smashes the old way of thinking and He says this. He says this. That it is easier for the immoral sinner to come to God than it is for the good moral person. Can you imagine hearing that? It had never been said before. That didn't make sense. Follow the rules, God lets you in. Break the rules, God sends you to hell. You don't even have to go to church or grow up in a Christian home to... to, to come to those two extremes. Your family of origin tells you these things. The way your boss treats you tells you these things. You're right? You do good at work, they give you a cookie. They call it a bonus. Right? Your kids do good, you give them a real cookie. Right? Take it from the dog, give it to the kids. No. Um, I don't know why I said that. You see what Jesus is saying here? You see why it's such a problem for so many people? Here's why it's a problem. Because your goodness can be more of a barrier to God than your badness. In other words, the good religious people are more alienated from God than the bad people. 
Do you see how Jesus completely obliterates this old way of thinking? See, the old way says good people are saved, bad people are lost. The old way says God wants good people, He rejects the bad people. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. I don't want good people. I want new people. Transformed people. Keller says it this way. He says, if Christianity is correctly understood, then it's the only religion in the world that religious people hate. And if religious people don't hate it, then it's because it's not being proclaimed. Does this seem radical to you? Maybe you're thinking, I've gone to church all my life. Or all, you know what, I've been going to church for a long time. Maybe, and you say, you know, I've always seen the world through that set of glasses, that old pair of glasses. I've interpreted everything through the lens of morality and of right and wrong. And I wonder, do you have your own pair? You know, we all do. I do. You do. We have a prodigal pair and we have a Pharisee pair. Every one of us. That's why this parable speaks to all of us. But I want to ask you, is God inviting you today to smash the old ones and to put on the new? To put on Jesus. Not just the Jesus you think He is, but the Jesus He claimed to be. The Jesus whom Scripture teaches. Where you'll take your old assumptions, set them aside, and begin to see Jesus as He is. Maybe this makes you angry to hear me talk like this. I had a woman at church, she was so mad at me. Pastor, she said, you're what's wrong with this church. Do you see all these immoral people here? And she, she named names. She couldn't say my last name right. Skill per ort. Do you see all these immoral people here? Pastor Chad, you're what's wrong with this church. You're soft on sin. Pastor Chad, you just need to tell these people they're going to hell. And I thought, so that's why they call it the good news. And I'm sad to report that this very moral, very good person decided to leave the church. But I'm happy to report all you immoral people hung around. Actually, that was in Clarkston. But I think I've heard the same thing here. Years past. See, the old thinking is this, that good people are closer to God than bad people. Jesus says just the opposite. Yeah, both are lost. But bad rule breakers are more likely to come to God than good rule keepers. Jesus is telling us here. How would you answer the question? It goes like this. How should people live to make this world a better place? I wonder how we would answer that. You know, if I went into inner city Seattle and asked the most liberal, secular Democrat, you'd hear one thing. If I went to the south to the Bible Belt and I talked and I asked the same question to a conservative, Christian, Republican, Bible thumper, you know, he would give you a different answer. Or at least it would seem different. At the core, however, both would give me, I think, the same answer. It would go something like this. You know, the problem, people would say, is it's all the bad people. How we define bad and good is a little different based on our worldview, right? 
The world would be a better place if there was just more good people than bad people. You know, news channels have decided on who the good and the bad people are, and they decide which ones. You can go to Fox News or you can go to CNN. You can just find the enemies, right? This is our culture. It's ingrained in us. The old glasses are everywhere. The problem is, all the bad people, the world would be at a better place if there was just more good people than bad people. In other words, if people just lived the way I live, you know, like the good people, well, then the world would be a better place. Church, hear me, please. That is the old set of glasses. It's an old way of thinking. And if you're still wearing them, you're going to have a distorted image of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are to be united by and changed by. You know, you can be changed by a lie or a half-truth, right? I'm sure last Sunday Colin Kaepernick believed he could beat the Seattle Seahawks. That was a foolish thought. And he was changed when his face hit the... Well, anyway, I get so violent. Um, Clarkson's rubbing off on me. If we could take a second look at our own church, at LifeSpring. See, the Pharisees didn't understand why the worst sinners kept crowding around Jesus. Do you want them crowding around you? Do we want them crowding around us? Would those who feel rejected by religion feel accepted here? You know, I I know this church and I know the heart of this church. And I would say, yeah, I, I know you guys. But it's important to ask the question. It's important to live with that tension. Because you don't want people to come here and feel rejected by a bunch of religious insiders. And you're insiders right now. You're inside the church. Right? It's what you do with that that matters. So what's the problem with the old way of thinking? What's the radical new way? Jesus presents us with three radical new things. He gives us a much deeper view of sin, a far greater value of people, and a more expensive view of salvation. Number one, a new way of thinking, a deeper deeper view of sin. Sin, Jesus tells us, is running from God. He talks about a lost sheep. Why is the sheep lost? He's not out for a stroll, is he? Oh, whoops, I got lost. No, he's thinking, I can go get food over there and I don't need a shepherd to get it. There's a son, he's lost. What's his problem? He says, I want my wealth and I want to enjoy it without my father's oversight. I don't want you, Dad. I don't want your authority. I want to do with it as I please. Give it to me now. See, the old way of thinking says this, says that sin is breaking the rules. Jesus says that's not what sin is. Sin is running from God. And here's why it's so radical. You see, you can just as easily run from God by breaking all the rules as you can by keeping them all. The rule-breaking younger brother runs from God. The rule-keeping elder brother runs from God, stays away, stays out of the, the party. They're both alienated from God. But because the good son kept the rules, he can't see how his rule-keeping goodness is keeping him from enjoying the feast. 
You see, if I do good, then guess what? I'm entitled. All right, I mean, I, I'm doing good. I'm loyal. I'm doing good. And so you, God, should do right by me. Right? Wrong. Jesus says this is the worst form of lostness. The three parables illustrate that there's more than one way to get lost. The lost sheep can get lost through his own foolishness. The lost coin, you can get lost through your own carelessness. The prodigal son, you can get lost through your own willfulness. And then the older brother, you can get lost through your own willfulness. Or your own pridefulness, excuse me. But here's the thing, all are lost. All are lost. Everyone is running from God. In Romans 3, verse 11, Paul writes, he says, No one seeks for God. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 3, verse 6, says, We like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned each one to our own way. And why? Why do we run? You know why? So God won't ruin our fun. Right? That's why. The new message from Jesus, though, offers... It involves a much deeper view of sin, but also a much greater value of people. That we are God's treasure. You're God's treasure. Every one of you. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're God's treasure. A couple of weeks ago, I lost my wallet. And uh, I'm pretty sure it wasn't stolen. Uh, If it was stolen, the thief... I'm thankful he was doing a good job. He was spending less money than I was. Um, But I looked all over for it. I I couldn't find it. Every day I was looking. And why? Why do I keep looking for it? Because I need my wallet. It's got my driver's license in there. It's got debit card. You know, it had like a whole bunch of money, like 40 bucks. Hey, I'm a pastor. That's a lot of money. Fortunately, though, the, the most important thing wasn't there. I, uh, I keep my fishing license in my tackle box. Tell me that in Clarkston, that's a big deal. So you don't search for things you don't value. You don't search for things that you don't value. The Pharisees were upset that Jesus hung out with the biggest sinners. But Jesus is saying to them, Why aren't you looking for these people? Why aren't you looking for these people? Why are there harps playing in the middle of service? I love that. It's great. There's angels flying through church. I love it. Pink stars. I love it. Where was I? I love it. This is family. I love it. Jesus is saying to them, why aren't you looking for these people? He's saying to the Pharisees, why aren't you looking for these people? The answer is that you don't value them. He says, I'm the shepherd who looks for the lost sheep. I'm the woman looking for the lost coin. I'm the father looking for a lost son. See, of all the religions in the world, all the religious books, only the Bible teaches this, that God created you and me from nothingness. And that God doesn't need us for anything. God doesn't need you, doesn't need me. Here's why this is important to remember. Why did I look for my wallet? Because I needed it. It had value because I needed it. 
But if God doesn't need us, then why do we have value? He loves us not because He needs us. He loves us because the God of the universe chooses to. Do you see what this means? The God of the universe, the God who spoke galaxies into existence, has voluntarily, intentionally bound Himself to you. So that like a, heaven, like a father can't be happy unless his kids are happy. His heart is broken when his kids are broken. You know what this means? It means that if you really understand Jesus' message, if we really understand the heart of God, and we understand our incredible value to Him, then we're going to have the highest self-esteem on the planet. How can we possibly think of ourselves as feeling like scum when the God of the universe says, you're my priceless treasure? And you know, if your self-esteem is in the toilet and it's being flushed, it could be possible, this could be the reason why. But you're wearing some old glasses. Still trying to validate yourself the old way. The voices of other people, the approval, the list, the, the things that our culture values. It says you're valuable if. And they always come with a string attached. And God just says to us, you're valuable. You're my treasure. For many years, I had what I would describe as a case of spiritual religious schizophrenia. Maybe you can relate. You know, when I was victorious, I felt good about myself. When I was, you know, failed because of sin, I, I felt scummy, bad. Like a religious Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I kind of grew to my, I hate myself at one point. Why? Because I was still wearing the old glasses that said, if I do good, then I'm worthy. And if I do bad, I'm unworthy scum. I don't live there anymore. Hallelujah, I don't live there anymore. I spit on that season and I... Oh, I take the old glasses and I drop them and I just smash them with my foot. I don't live there anymore because I put on the, the Jesus glasses and now I can see that my worth and value has nothing to do with what I do or don't do. It has everything to do with who He says I am. And what He's done for me. He hasn't just said it. He's proved it. I'm going to tell you in a minute. He says, I'm, I'm God's priceless treasure. I'm someone who is so important to God that He sent His Son to die for me. Now, as I say this, some of you are still emotionally, spiritually, sitting with your arms crossed, wondering if you still have value. I'm praying for you this morning. Let God's voice break through. This will change your life. If you walked around and just told people how incredibly valuable they are in God's eyes, they might look at you and think you're nuts, but you'd be the only voice that told them that.
when I think of this, do you know how it makes me feel? One word, cherished. I feel cherished. Hear me please. If you feel like scum, if you feel like a loser, then you gotta, you probably are wearing an old set of glasses. If your self-esteem is based on the opinions of others, how you perform at your job, how well you follow God's moral will, whether you do right or wrong, you're trapped in the old way of thinking. You're the old value system. You're not following the Gospel. And I pray this morning that you rip off the old and put on the new. See yourself. See the world the way Jesus does. How many of you have read Scripture where Jesus opened blind eyes? Raise your hand. This is the God that we worship. Jesus heals blind eyes. And many of us are blind to our own blindness. At least a blind man knows that he can't see and has to beg for help. Some of us this morning, you've got to beg for help. God, I'm blind. I'm wearing that old set of glasses. And though I think I see, I'm seeing everything distorted. And it's shaping everything about me and my life and my future. I've been prophesying in my own life all this awful stuff. You know what worry is? That's negative prayer. Don't tell me you don't meditate. You meditate all the time. Oh God, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to do this? How am I going to succeed? At all this stuff. And we just need to remember how incredibly loved and valued we are by God. And when you put on the new, you're going to receive these high definition glasses a deeper view of sin, a higher value of people, and a more expensive view of salvation. That God paid the cost for you. See, people wearing the old glasses see this parable very differently. The conservative rule keeper or the moralist says, Jesus, you, you tell a story about a father who's too soft on sin. That kid's got to pay, pay, pay up. He squandered everything. And how dare you let him get off that easy? Sin has to be paid for. And their complaint is, Jesus, your price is wait. Jesus, you're just too easy. You've got to pay. But Jesus says to the moralist, he says, yeah, they, there's a payment for sin. But he says to the moralist, your idea of payment is way too low. Huh? The liberal rule-keeping, uh, the, the liberal rule-breaker relativist person in our culture today says, of course the prodigal son is received and accepted because God accepts and loves everybody. Of course you don't have to pay for sin because sin doesn't even exist. You don't have to pay for it. Don't pay for something that doesn't exist. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. There's a price for sin and it's very high. Jesus smashes the old glasses and He says, you need a more expensive view of salvation that God Himself paid the cost to save you and me. Because you're much more valuable to Him than you realize. And the cost to save you is much higher than you can ever imagine. See, God is so much more than just a shepherd who looks for a lost sheep. So much more than a woman looking for a lost coin. So much more than a father looking for a lost son. I think these are nice things. They're wonderful. They give us a warm, fuzzy feeling. Oh, God is welcoming and, and all that. And He is. But I don't think that in our mindset changes us by itself. What does? When is the prodigal really changed? 
Is it when he comes home? No. When he comes home, he's groveling. His, he's got this plan. He's been worrying the whole time. He's been planning this, this speech. He's going to tell his dad about how he's going to become a hired hand and he's not worthy to be his son and all this stuff. And you know what? He's still living outside the Father's love. He still knows that he's alienated and feels alienated from the Father. And that he can't come back in. And his, his, best, his best hope is, 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 is that his Father won't treat him like he's a dead man. He's not changed. Here's when the radical change comes to the prodigal. It's when the father embraces him and kisses him. I want you to imagine right now your heavenly father embracing you and kissing you. Some of you have never experienced a healthy touch like that. They've either been abusive or sexual or icky. And the God of the universe comes and He takes prodigals and He embraces and He kisses. And then He gives His Son His robe, kills the fatted calf, and throws the party of the century. Have you ever heard someone describe eternal salvation as a giant party? It's all through Scripture. It's not Shady Acres where everyone follows the rules. It's not floating on a cloud and drinking pina coladas. Virgin ones, of course. This isn't it. It's a party with God for all eternity. It is a celebration. Oh my goodness, it's something to look forward to. And yet many of us are alienated. And the father said, come on, prodigals and elder brothers. You see, it's not the father's embrace that saves us. It's actually his sacrifice. Sacrifice? I didn't see a sacrifice. Oh, there is. Who paid the price? You know who paid the price? The elder son paid the price. See, this estate had already been liquidated. The the elder son had gotten his piece. The younger son got his piece. And the younger son, what did he do? He wasted it. It doesn't exist anymore. Not only is the estate diluted, it's gone. When the father invites the prodigal back, gives him the fatted calf, gives him the robe, puts a ring on his finger, throws him a party, that's the elder brother's robe, that's the elder brother's ring, it's the elder brother's fatted calf. Don't you see, not only is Jesus the shepherd looking for the sheep, the woman looking for a coin, the father looking for a son, but he's the elder brother who pays the ultimate price. The prodigal had a stingy elder brother. You know who you have? You have the ultimate elder brother. His name is Jesus. And he paid the ultimate price with his life. So the price for sin is high. Jesus knows. I wonder if some of you this morning, maybe you thought of yourself as a Christian your whole life. I grew up in a Christian home. 
Maybe you're discovering that you're still wearing the old glasses. You know that if you just try harder, God will accept me in the end. Yeah, I know. I just got to keep trying harder. That if I do right, God will treat me right. And if you're honest, really, this morning you say, you know, I feel good when I do good. I feel bad when I do bad. Now, there's a part of that that can be healthy because, you know, I know there's repentance and we, we, don't, we don't want our conscience to be seared and think good is bad and bad is good. But if your worth and value is dependent on how you live and what you do, then you're going to be a miserable person. Hear me, please. You're still wearing the old glasses. And you know what? If that's you, you're not a Christian. You're a Pharisee. It doesn't matter that you've been baptized, received communion, attend service every week, help here on stage and leading music and all this stuff. You cannot be a new person in Christ until you smash the old and receive the new. And normally we often, I remember thinking sermons like this and thinking, well, I just got to put on those new, new attitudes and those, that new morality and that new Christian way of living. You know, I've got to get the black Bible and the tasseled shoes and I've got to smile funny at church. No. The new way of thinking is to repent for the reason you ever did anything good. How do I do that? Three simple things. Number one, trust the shepherd. Trust the shepherd completely. When a horse runs out of the barn, what does he do? He runs and he joins the other wild horses, right? He becomes a wild horse. What happens when a sheep leaves the barn? He gets eaten by wild, sheep, uh, wild animals, right? That's why Jesus said, I am the, you're, the, you're the sheep and I'm the shepherd. And he's saying, you, you need my care completely, totally. Food, shelter, water, protection. You've got to trust Him completely. Secondly, you've got to surrender to Him fully. Have you ever seen those pictures? of you know, The cute pictures of the little lammy on the shoulders of the shepherd. It's kind of cute, you know. Fuzzy little cute little lamb. And you kind of get that warm fuzzy feeling. It feels really good, right? Unless you're the sheep. What happens when the sheep sees the shepherd coming? The lost sheep sees the shepherd coming. Does he go, oh, hey, goody, it's the shepherd. He's going to take me back to my friends. And we're going to go get some food. And he's going to do nice things to me. And we're going to have this wonderful time. No, he goes, there's a good shepherd. Or there's the evil shepherd. And he's going to take away my fun. And I've got to go run away from him. I don't, I'm out here because I didn't want to be there in the first place. I wanted food without the shepherd. <laughs> and the shepherd sends a dog. Terrorizes the sheep. Backs him into a corner. And then the shepherd approaches. And the sheep doesn't go willingly. The shepherd has to go and pounce on him wrestle him to the ground, tie his legs up, throw his fluffy white butt back on his shoulders and haul his butt back to the barn. 
Now that's a picture of surrendering to the Good Shepherd. You know, if you look at your life and you say, you know, God shouldn't be treating me this way. Maybe He's sending a dog after you. Maybe He's tying you up and getting you ready to get on His shoulders. And if you think God shouldn't be treating me this way, you're putting, you're still wearing those old glasses. You're thinking, look, I've done right. I should get right. I should do... Take them off. Put on the new. And finally, when you put on the new, you're going to value other people greatly. You know why? Here's why. Because you see yourself as valued treasure that you are. You cannot see other people that way until you understand that and receive that for yourself. You're so valuable that God sent His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting party in heaven salvation. Amen? Oh God, we worship You this morning. Heavenly Father, You are such a compassionate, loving Daddy. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters here this morning, I pray for the new to come and to completely change the way we think about everything. Oh, Jesus. I pray for the prodigals here this morning. Maybe you've been running from God for whatever reason. And you need to come back. And today's the day. Maybe you're that prodigal and you've been thinking though you've wanted to come back you have felt unworthy because you know you've got a list of shameful things and we all do I believe the Holy Spirit is asking you to see that list on fire burning up yeah the Lord knows all about that stuff that place you went last night the thing you clicked on the internet the pill you popped The thing you smoked, he knows all about it. And he knows that just because you stop doing those things, it's not going to lead you to heaven. But you need to start putting on Jesus and put on the glasses. Put Put on Christ. See him. See the entire world through his eyes. If that is you this morning, I want to pray with you. And just with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, maybe just put your hand up and just just acknowledge that you're here and that the Lord is speaking to some of us prodigals this morning. It's in your heart. I'm one. My hand is up. I've been in that place. And I want to pray with you right now. Lord Jesus, and if you could just even just pray this with me out loud. It's just a simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I've been away from you. I'm coming to you now. I know you love me. And I trust you. I believe what you say about me being priceless treasure.
thank you for pursuing me. And I surrender to you. Some of us here this morning, you are struggling with the elder brother glasses, the Pharisee glasses, the morality, the rule following, and and getting things right. And you have this emotional cycle of up and, and downs. And you, you want to get off of that and you want to begin to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. And He wants to break through your pride right now and I just want to pray with you. We all have the prodigal. We all have the elder brother. And we both need this. And it's just a simple prayer and we can say it together. Dear Jesus, I'm a proud person. And I confess my pride to You. I know I don't deserve the feast. But I'm not going to let my pride get in the way. I'm coming in. And I want to party with you, Jesus. You're my Savior. You're my healer. You're my victory. And you're the way I see the world. And I want to see through your eyes. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. 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 Wow.